In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars, one oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my awesome co host, Patrick Pister. Hey, yo, Mark, I'm ready to kick off episode number 36. How are you doing today? Well, considering that we just talked for 30 minutes and I didn't press record. I hate not, you a little bit right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, other than that, Patrick, I'm doing really yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, podcast is booming. We have a bunch of new listeners coming on board. Uh, and we have some very patient uh, guests <laughs> with us today. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about a very patient guest today. So we have a Weston Solutions here. We have Ann and Ryan. Hey, hey, Ann and Ryan. Thanks for having us. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Even though we've already been talking for a half hour. <laughs> well, that, in that 30 minutes, Ryan just gave you all the secrets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you write it down? <laughs> yeah. So um, um, Weston is uh, an environmental company, right, Ryan? Yes, sir. Environmental yeah. consulting. All right, consulting. And what does that actually mean? So Weston's uh, uh, about 60 years old. We're celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. And uh, we're 1,100 people in 25 offices. And our, you know, our core services is environmental permitting, compliance, remediation, and, and some specialty environmental construction. So it's soup to nuts. It's everything from before the project till after you turn the thing off. Yeah. And so, Ryan, um, how did you actually get involved in this? Like, so, where did you get started? Yeah, I, I got a degree in civil engineering with an environmental option, and uh, I actually started with Weston as my first job. So, you've been here the whole time? Uh, yeah, net you about took a 20 hi- years. Hi- yeah. hi- hiatus a little bit. I went and did something else for a, for a couple of years, following some interests, and then uh, had an opportunity to bring those interests back to Weston. So. Yeah, that's that's rare. That's very, it I don't is, think yeah. I've ever talked to you. I started and still in the same place. Yeah. But, you know, that means that you've seen the evolution in this industry. You know, 20 years ago, environmental remediation, environmental permits, way different than it is now. Yeah, it's way, it's way different. You know, so the, the scale of responsibility that we're seeing in the corporate sides has really increased with awareness. You know, the regulations have changed. The landscape has changed. The public scrutiny of uh, corporate performance has changed so much that it's interesting to see what drives environmental responsibility we talked earlier, and we'll talk again probably later, <laughs> <laughs> about the oil and gas industry in particular being a responsible operator and, and really going above and beyond. You know, that comes from nepotism. It comes from, you know, wanting to do it right, but it also comes from stakeholder in, in scrutiny and all kinds of, of different stakeholders. There's a long list, public, financial, insurance. So the scrutiny that everybody's putting on environmental has grown leaps and bounds in oh, 25 dramatically. years. 25 years and yeah. things like social media, things like technology has only increased that scrutiny and made it easier for people. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so the industry as a whole has to be able to, to work with it, has to be able to mitigate if it's a risk or actually hopefully even be able to use that same technology to their advantage. That's right. So you're seeing technology being a major player in all of this, and that's one of the big things that's changing. For sure. I mean, everything from downhole tools and the Internet of Things and the uh, I can do more on my on my iPhone today than I could do with every computer in the office right. when I started. You know, Lotus <laughs> 123 actually doesn't work on my iPhone. <laughs> um, and it, that's a damn shame. Is Lotus 123 still around? 
I remember that. Date myself now. I, I might be able to cough up a manual, <laughs> but uh, I don't think anything will run it anymore. <laughs> yeah, so one of the first things we, you talked about, Weston, is permitting, and, and that's actually kind of your uh, your sweet spot, isn't it? Permitting and construction, yes. Yeah, and that world is, is a lot of people understand in the oil and gas industry, when you want to do something, and everything we do is a project, whether you want to stand up an ethylene cracker, build a pipeline, expand a refinery, you can't just start construction, can you? No, no. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of planning, um, a lot of planning for multidisciplines, but um, the, the first you know, first step is really getting organized and planned to go and talk to agencies and the public. And those generally, for bigger projects, happen about the same time. Uh, agencies t- tend to want to see that you've reached out to the public in some capacity to get some information, um, whether it be regulated that way or not. But it's really trying to line up these disciplines on you know, writing, routing, siting, the engineering designs, and then where does that fit with environmental permitting? It's a lot of planning. It really is. And then you have competing interests from these different agencies, groundwater, surface water, threatened endangered species, vegetation. I mean, the list can go on and on and on, and every agency has its own thing. And sometimes they don't always line up. So that's part of you know our strengths as consultants and part of our job is to find common ground um, that we can bring these topics together and find the best foot forward. Every project can't avoid every impact, obviously, but we do our very best to, to avoid and minimize and then mitigate You know, after that. It takes a lot of coordination, and it's not just environmental. So much comes in from the design um, and, and looking at things with the, with the core group. It's really a, it's a partnership. Um, building these teams together is a science of its own, to be honest. Um, whether you're a consultant, you're in the company all together, it takes a little time to mesh and meld because we also have our own things that we're looking at. I'm the environmental person saying, oh, we can't cross that area. And then you've got an engineer design saying, we have to. We, we can't have to. go anywhere else. <laughs> right. We've got karst topography over there. Or, Did you see the side of that slope? We can't go up that. This is where yeah. we got to be. So, you know, we really work together and figure that stuff out and then have to go and educate agencies too because. You know, we don't expect that every one of these agencies are sitting around just waiting for the next oil and gas project to come along. Some of them have their own thing. The Corps of Engineers, they're responsible for a lot more than permitting projects like ours. I mean, they're the safety of vessel traffic and the water quality of our, you know, our resources. So it's really our job to make sure they understand what we're doing and why and, and help them along in their process as well. But that permitting process is there for a reason. It's there, it's there it's for either the local or state government or government agencies to make sure that these projects are done safely and environmentally responsible. But it changes. It's not just one. You don't go fill out one piece of paper, right? It's, it's different agencies, different parts of the country, different geographic preferences. Dramatically, dramatically. And even within one agency, uh, and I'll use Fish and Wildlife. I mean, it's a, it's a really good one to use because species are different in different re- regions and areas. So what might be really important down here in Texas is not going to be the same species necessarily of concern that are in Pennsylvania. So um, it's, it's important to find consultants that have a good breadth that understand those things. Uh, that's one of the values that I bring just because I've worked around the country. I may not be a wildlife biologist expert, but I've worked in so many different areas that I, I kind of understand certain things and realize you have to be flexible. Um, but gosh, gosh, when you start, you go from the federal side, but then you go to the state side, that is gets so complicated and, and very, very different. And, and for some reasons, rightfully so, um, Pennsylvania is a very, very good example Um first place that oil was found and now look where we are today I mean that's the major source of good consumable natural gas in the country and it's just massive 
Pennsylvania has had to take some time to get their regulations up to speed, and it's been difficult, I can tell you, from working <laughs> through it. But as an industry person, we also have to recognize that these agencies are responsible to their constituents, too. Right. So they're, they are trying to find solutions that slow us down sometimes, and we want to get product to market. But if you give them the time, I think they're usually looking for good feedback so that they can modify their processes to be a little bit more advanced. And with the public scrutiny, um, not NGOs in the area, they have to be responsible for those things. It's not just the company. They've got to answer. And that's why I think that some of the processes have been slowed a little bit more. But you're seeing a lot of evolution and regulation, too. And that is very different from state to state to region to region. Yeah, so if you're a, a large company, oil and gas company, you're trying to do a project, it probably behoves, 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 behoves you <laughs> to make sure you bring some expertise because it is so complex to get permits done. But you can't expect to hit your project delivery dates unless you get your permitting done first, right? Absolutely. That's, I mean, first first thing out of the gate, we usually, I, I call it a risk register. There's you know, different ways you can call it, but we look at, especially when you have something that, uh, like maybe a linear project that's going through multiple states, is we look at what the different permitting processes are, what are the risks involved in those things, meaning to schedule and cost. If we are delayed in this particular area, what does that mean to the overall project? But the complexities get even greater than that because, like I mentioned before, you have competing resources. So Fish and Wildlife may want you to clear your area for construction to a very specific time of the season because it's going to avoid and, and minimize impacts to a certain species. But yet the state agency wants you to cross all the streams in a completely different time. You may end when you look at some of these windows that are put on the regulatory permitting side, if you upheld every one of them with no negotiation, you may have a month to build. Wow. Like, and it changes dry region. You know, in the south, we have full growing seasons, so we have vegetation and don't have the snow. But when you get up into the northeast and the north, you've got winter to deal with because then you have safety concerns. Nobody really wants to work during winter construction. Right. It's not preferred by anybody, but some these companies oftentimes get forced to it because of all the environmental requirements that are – that's the only windows left to do construction. So – it's a very delicate balancing act and a lot, a lot of understanding and negotiation with, with the companies and the agencies. It's interesting that, you know, we talk about the permit piece, right? So we talk about permitting and permitting for us generally is thought of as, you know, some regulation that you have to comply with. You have to get that piece of paper. At the same time, a lot of these projects also have to need a license to operate. And, you know, the permit piece is complicated enough. Then you fold on top of that the local stakeholders and the NGOs and people who might be opposed for some reason and that becomes something that's much more difficult to control if you look at a lot of the delays that have happened in major public projects recently they've not been permit related that's and true they might be the ex that might be the excuse but they're not been permit related they've been for uh, a third party uh, opposition or something else so when we talk about permitting a lot of what Ann does is you know look at the matrix right what do we need to do we've got to get through all of these goodies with all of these agencies but we also really need to reach out we need to start making sure that these agencies are our partners and they are fully informed and they can help us communicate the same message about the project as we are as the company 
at the same time, we have to actively engage the NGOs and the locals and, and make sure that we have the license to operate this project. Yeah, so, Ryan, let me it's back huge. you up. What's an NGO, in case people don't know? Uh, non-governmental organization. Yeah, so, so these are basically the different groups out there that are not affiliated with the government that have a viewpoint on something. Correct. And yeah. they're yeah. organized, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Strong viewpoints, very mm-hmm. organized. But um, I was going to ask, what what's actually more difficult to navigate than your the government regulations, I would think, are very step one, step two, hit these boxes. It may be onerous to get within these these window constraints, but um, the NGOs, the, the public outreach seems a little more like a bowl of spaghetti. Yeah, it's like proving the negative, right? So with the NGOs, it, it depends on who you go up against. There are some folks who really, truly have real valid concerns about not in my backyard. I'm concerned about the safety of my family, my livestock, my, my pro- value of my property. You know, that's one group. And then there are some of the other groups that come uh, with more of a, a global political agenda that are a little bit harder to defend against. And no answer is going to be okay. The trick with, particularly with linear projects like Ann typically works on, is these projects are development projects, right? So I've got somebody who wants to uh, use the, res- the asset. I want to build the asset, and I want to make money through the use of that asset. When you develop a project like that, you have to know what the costs are, what the revenues are, and you need some sort of surety that I can actually get it done. And the permitting process is one variable, right? So we know we, we need to do all these different things. It might be hard, harder in some places to get all these permits and get my project in the ground, but at least I, I'm pretty sure I can do it. There's some piece of paper, some law, some reg that says I can, I can if I, as long as I do all these things, I'm good. Right. The NGO side is completely, there, there is no endpoint. There's no done. Um, what you, so what, the, what we find is that active and early engagement with a good, clean, well-thought-through story of value is, is the best way to diffuse that. Get everybody on the same page as soon as you can, and it, it goes smoother. There's no guarantee it'll be smooth, but it's smoother. Right. Yeah. So, Ryan, because uh, all this complexity, all these different moving parts, I would imagine that you get involved with your client's project earlier is probably better. Yeah, generally, you know, the we get called in at all different times. I mean, we we get called in to be the firemen and put out the put out the problems when they've occurred. But the smoothest way to execute these things is to get us involved when you're, you know, at the concept stage. Bring us in. That's the cheapest money you'll spend on the job is to get a first opinion. So we get engaged, and I mean, I've been engaged as late as not everybody uses the front end engineering design feed, and they everybody's got their own different incarnation of it, but. You know, we get involved at the conceptual stage, just putting together that risk matrix that, that Ann was talking about, all the way to, you know, I'm, I'm in feed three and I've got 50% design, and now I realize I need a permit. We can we can help at all stages, but it's easier for us and cheapest if we get involved first. Yeah, because what you, ha- what you do is you bring your domain expertise and you go, there's a gotcha that you didn't see coming, right? And you catch it at the conception state or the feed state. Well, it's not a lot of money or time as opposed to you actually start construction and you hit that gotcha. Now it's a totally different cost. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I really, um, and it's not, I'm not an expert at this, but it's something I really encourage uh, companies to think of really early on. At the end of all of this, the, the public, the agencies are going to judge you and how you finished the project and you restored it. And you may have put a permanent facility here. If you're a linear project, you're maintaining a right-of-way, but you're responsible for restoration. If you get restoration, you plan your restoration early because it, it's key, and it, that takes a lot of people to come in and, and soil scientists or whatnot, depending on where you are. If you get that done right the first time, 
you will save your money on the back end so so many times over it's it's and that is a topic that's actually you hear so much more in in the industry these days i'm actually speaking at a reclamation summit next month and we're going to have record numbers this year um because well one there's going to be more pipeline construction going on in 2017 and 2018 um than the history of of our industry which is really big um and we're at max capacity with the people the amount of equipment and people know that this is really important. So you're gonna hear a lot more about restoration, um, but that's something we've been talking about for years and it's it's catching on. It's a, now, now it's becoming, you're not seeing the necessarily the prime contractors doing all the restoration work anymore. There's these really great specialty companies out there that understand unique situations and can put it back. And it can sometimes even be habitat. There might be a really neat species that's in an area that we can still construct through and we can restore it and get it back 100% and both things can coexist. So it's a really interesting time that we're going to come up because of all the construction and restoration things that we're going to see. I think it's going to make a big pendulum swing about how you see projects going forward because there's so much going to be tested over the next couple yeah. of years. And if people don't know what restoration is, what is that? Restoration? Yeah. Um, basically putting the land back, and that can change. A state land may want you to do something particular on their land where a landowner may want something different. But you know, in the end, it's whatever is not your permanent facility that you're getting it to an, an environmentally friendly state. Yep. Um, and it's not always the same for every project. What is so cool about it is 20 years ago, that was throwing ryegrass seed and some hay and then walking away from it. Now I'm watching people that understand the different native species of trees, mm -hmm. and they actually go do a statistical analysis before, and they go back and they replant the right trees in the right place. So that has become a science in itself. Mm -hmm. And when it's done properly, when it's finished, you can't tell anything ever happened there. And, and the, the great thing about smart restoration is that it actually minimizes your long-term maintenance costs, right? So if you do it right, you know, you don't have to go back and remow or, or selectively devegetate because something's come in invasive that, that shouldn't have been there. You know, if you go back with the, the natives, like you said, you know, it, it can ultimately cut down on your costs. Sometimes it's harder to get them reestablished. There's a little more tender loving care that needs to be done at the, in, at the, at the replanting stage, but saves you money over the long term. Yeah, and apart from it being the right thing to do ecologically, nobody wants, or the industry doesn't want somebody to leave a site to where somebody can just come and point and look look what the oil and gas industry left behind they they just wasted but so there's a there's a pr like you talked about the outreach there's there's pr that goes along with making this the site better than you left it after your job's done mm -hmm. i know there's a lot of quality deer hunting in south texas and in, in, in pipeline right away you would not believe you, how many you, deer you, stands you see on a right away yeah, you, <laughs> But that's all part of the landowner negotiation. Sometimes that's that's a, it's called a sendero. Yeah. So that, that actually brings me kind of a bit of a segue that will kind of loop back around. But you know, if anybody's listened to our show and they don't know our industry, a lot of people outside our industry think that we don't care about the environment. And I challenge that. I this is the only industry I know where almost everybody's measured and rewarded on their impact to the environment. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've I've worked. I've been in the environmental industry for 20 something odd years and uh, worked in many, many, many sectors and started working in the oil and gas industry about eight years ago. And it's, I've been stunned at the level of commitment that you see from senior management down to field technicians. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating to see, like you said, how that performance, both health, safety and environment are, are baked into performance goals. Um, and, but you also see, you know, People in the community, these the, these companies work. Uh, they're they're local. Every project that gets done, every operator, as soon as they enter an area, is local because they're hiring local people. Right. And they live there. 
and they want it to be as good for their kids as they do for your kids. So um, it's 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 pretty inspiring sometimes to see the links that, that these companies go to to make sure that they're good stewards. Yeah, it's um, sometimes it brings tears to mind. You remember the big wildfires in Canada two years ago? So BP had 2,000 employees that volunteered. They weren't paid. And, and they actually took money out of their pockets and they bought trees and they went up there with shovels and they started replanting those forests, right? Because it was the right thing to do. Nobody paid them to do it. It wasn't a stunt put on by the company. The media didn't cover it all, but those BP people did the right thing. And that's the culture of our industry is we want to do the right thing, including the way we uh, impact the environment. These people are people. They're right. your neighbors. They're, you know, they're, they're good. They're humans. And, you know, nobody's there. There's no devil in this industry. You know, there's the rogue operator who does some bad stuff. And, you know, two guys in a pickup truck and a little bit of money can cause a lot of damage. That's not 99.99% of the industry. Right. You know. So now we're loop back around. So we're talking about restoration, but there's also um, remediation. So what is remediation? Remediation is effectively putting the land back to its natural state before whatever happened. Yeah. So you have an incident and then you have to figure out how that impacts the environment and you got to go fix it. Yeah. Um, you know, you hear, you hear everybody talking about the BP Macondo disaster, right? You don't hear too many people talking about the fact that you can't find traces of the hydrocarbon anymore because they fixed it. Whatever it took, whatever money it took, we, they fixed the problem. And that is actually, I think, is really cool. I want to talk a little bit about that because one of the things that, that we've seen is that you have operators, and their core competency is not remediation, and they have a, a spill of some sort. And the first thing they may think of is to hire a contractor to haul that contaminated soil off. But what they don't realize is they still have legal responsibility for that contaminated soil while it's being transported until it's, it's been disposed. And there may be another solution that doesn't put them as much at risk from a liability point of view or maybe cheaper than actually trying to haul that soil off. Right. You know, so our job as consultants is to enable business, right? So we're there to make sure that uh, our clients are, are in compliance, getting the right permits, and staying on the right side of what they're supposed to be doing as far as their, their duties in, in their operations. So, you know, the... One of the challenges that you have when you come to the problem uh, with the mindset that you're enabling operations is to is to come up with a, the most, you know, we, we talk about the solution with the fewest moving parts, right? We want the simplest, reliable, cost-effective solution that you can find. And a lot of times the easy solution is not the smartest solution. Right. And we, we do wind up having to train our clients, our customers a little bit to not knee-jerk react to some of these things. Um, yes, there's something on the ground that shouldn't be there, but take a second, give us a call, and, and ask for an opinion on what you should do first. So, I mean, we, I'm working with a client right now who has had a, a spill. Um, they had another spill a year and a half ago, and it their first reaction was to start digging, and they dug for four and a half months. Ooh. Yeah, and so there, when this spill happened, they decided, nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to, let's stop, stand down, demob the excavator, Let's call our consultants and get some professional opinion on how to proceed. So we absolutely, there's a bunch of different ways. You know, at the end of the day, every regulation for, that, for, for remediation is, is basically directed at restoring the land to a, a, an acceptable state. Land use restrictions, you know, it can be, you can get it back to, to clean, right? What, how clean is clean? And every reg has its own uh, gradient basically continuum of, of what what you need to clean up to so understanding what you're going to use the land for next really drives the solutions that you put in place if you don't need to dig it all up and haul it all off and replace it with clean because you're going to put a parking garage on it then don't spend that money and don't incur that liability enable the business 
by making smart decisions. So yeah, so that brings me to another point. So does Weston also help companies with planning for emergencies or, or, or you know environmental impacts? We do. You know, on the contingency planning piece. You know, we do a lot of work with L, uh, with what's called an LEPC, local emergency planning. I forget what the C is. But <laughs> it's in there. It's another one of the committee. acronyms. That's a committee. I think it's probably committee. But we do work with uh, with our customers to help plan both their uh, response organization. So how do we organize to respond effectively? What do we need to think through first? You know, there we do a lot of contingency plans, both by regulation, so spill containment, SPCC. We'll do those plans. We'll do the facility response plans. Those are the prescriptive pieces. Really being effective as an organization at responding to incidents that does not is not driven by those plans. What we see a lot of times is our clients, you know, depending on the client, they'll either go way past that, and the SPCC plan basically flows out of what their documents have already been written on how to respond in their response organization. Versus, you know, some clients just want to check the box and make sure that they've got one in the in the bag in case they get audited. So, Ann, uh, I want to come back to you. So, so talking about things like remediation and uh, planning for emergency responses and stuff, but even a lot of that stuff has to maybe even start in the beginning of the project because those responses are going to be different in North Dakota than they will be in West Texas than they'll be different in Louisiana. It's true. That's true because a lot of that is based on the Clean Water Act. Um, and where your the waters of the U.S. are, um, where you may have less of a potential for an impact out west, where we have less water, we're down here in the south, where it's very wet. I mean, Louisiana is basically one big wetland. You know, it's a it's a lot more robust. Not that they, you don't have to do the same things, but it's much more um, robust down here, especially if you're along the coastline. Those are things, but also design too. Like you know, an SBCC and some of these bigger facility response plans, or even like a RICRA plan, where you've got like maybe large waste containers. Those have to be designed a certain way, and you have to put certain kinds of containment around it. You know, those of us down here in the South, we're very familiar with hurricanes. You know, you have to build things to a, a different level here, um, and certainly over the years, I mean, Katrina and some of the other. Um, disasters that we've had has really raised that up a, a, a bar. Um, right. Even after the BP incident um, offshore, that really raised the bar too, that the agencies might not have been looking at some of those plans as closely. So it really, then everybody started paying attention more. And so now I think they're being held, the regulation some, most of the time didn't necessarily need to change, but some of the regula- regulatory oversight was being missed. And now you're seeing a lot more of that. So we're yeah. definitely crossing our T's and dotting our I's a lot more closely. And also kind of thinking outside the box. I mean, when you have those disasters that occur, solutions come out of them for the future. And it's really our responsibility to make sure that we do capture those things so that we can guide um, new projects into you know the next wave of things and not what the way it was 15, 20 years ago. How is it today? But most importantly, what is it going to look like in 10 years from now? People are looking a lot further than they'd used to. It's, it's interesting to, you know, we had, uh, if you guys remember, maybe was it three years ago, big floods in Colorado. Oh, yeah. It, it, they were we talk about SPCC, so spill containment plans. These tank batteries are out in the middle of, you know, cornfield. There's no water around, right? Until there was. And they had giant floods. Nobody expected them. All of a sudden, these tank batteries floated. I mean, there were huge numbers that were up, that were, you know, off their moorings. I mean, there were no moorings. It was in the middle They're of a cornfield. Right, yeah. Everybody had, you know, everybody had their SPCC plan. It was a cookie cutter stamped out of something. But when you go to 
when you don't drill on it, when you don't prepare for it, when you don't think about this stuff, if you haven't, you can wind up responding poorly to those and causing more problems. Making it worse. Making yeah. it worse. We had, we talk about Katrina. There was a, an incident in Katrina. The large storage tank floated in inside of its secondary containment, and uh, the people who operated that facility saw that and got nervous about it. So they they decided to cut the berm on the containment and let all the water out of the containment. So the water left out of the containment, and the big tank floated with the water and came off of its attachments and just started spewing oil. I, I know exactly. I know exactly where it happened. So I actually. Um, um, I actually was so involved in Katrina restoration. I was working for the phone company at that time, and there was no connectivity. Bell South was the only place you still get connectivity. I, I'm not going to name the name of the company. I know exactly where that happened. Yep. Yeah, and they made a they made a situation that was not it was not a problem. not bad, but their decisions made it into a big, huge, made bad it, problem. Made it horrible. Yeah, made it a multi gajillion dollar yeah. issue. Yeah, because they made the wrong decision in that's that right. moment. That's right. Yeah. And that's one of those things that um, you know. You can have all the textbooks you want, but if you don't train your people the right way, if they don't, you know, and that's actually a good example. So New Orleans had not flooded in 100 years, right? Um, the Bell South CO on Poydras Street, on the third floor, there was a loading dock. Why? Because the Bell South engineers, 80 years ago, they built that building, thought about the possibility of New Orleans flooded, and they knew where to put that loading dock. So if it flooded, they could bring supplies by and by boat, right? So they thought it through. Now, nobody ever expected New Orleans to flood. That's another advantage about working with Weston is that y'all have seen all these different things, right? So you may think of, of uh, situations that your clients may not ever even think of. But once again, if you think about it ahead of time and you have a contingency plan, you can mitigate that risk dramatically. Yeah, nobody can ever think of everything. It's just not right. ever possible. But a second opinion and a, and a set of experienced eyes can, can really change the way you uh, – we talk about enabling the business, you know. We're talking about preparing for incidents so that you can get back to business as, as quickly as you can. You know, that's what we find fun about this job. Yeah. So, so we're talking about um, extreme situations, hurricanes, tornadoes, flooding that you may have thought could happen but didn't really plan for. When the incident occurs, how prescriptive are the regulatory bodies for the remediation? The company wants to get its squared away as quickly as possible. You want to do the right thing, but the regulatory body wants to make sure it's done a certain way. Are they pretty prescriptive on what you have to do, or they work with you and everybody's coming up with a, the right plan? How does that relationship work? Right. <laughs> so you typically, any incident like that, at any scale, anything that's, you know, that is going to garner a bunch of attention, typically split into two pieces. One is the emergency half. So it's make sure that life, health, safety are not in danger. During that, it's one, all hands on deck. Agencies, everybody are, you know, the the operator and their response organization the uh, regulatory agencies all hands on deck to make sure that that life safety and environment are protected and, and i would say it's still the operator is captain of that ship so yes. they, they're making the ultimate decision absolutely yeah yeah that's absolutely right they're they're uh, both responsibility and, and business interest is to make sure that one that they they stop whatever the issue is um, to protect their their business product but also you know, they're there trying to make sure that they haven't uh, endangered anybody but yeah, absolutely, they're the captain of the ship. They're the first ones there, and they're the first ones on site. They have the primacy, um, and the, whatever regulatory agencies typically show up at the emergency side. We're talking the first couple hours to maybe a, up to a week, maybe. Uh, it's generally all hands on deck. Right. Let's get it sorted out. And then after things calm down and, and the immediate dangers have been taken off, then it changes, the relationship changes because you get different people involved. And then it becomes pretty prescriptive. You know, it's thou shalt get this down to whatever my level is, and thou shalt do this, and thou shalt do that. 
depending on how nice you are and how respect responsive you are you may or may not get fined you know we'll see yeah so um, i've been dying to ask this the whole time oh god no no this fascinates i knew me. you were going to bring this up you know what i'm gonna bring yeah. up so did y'all actually help the state of new jersey remove war or two munitions from its <laughs> beach yes yeah. <laughs> we did so we uh i believe it was through an uh contract we hold with the epa in that region so the there was a project by one of the uh, local by the state of new jersey i think it was to do beach restoration beach replenishment so they got a sand dredge and they parked it offshore and they pumped sand from offshore onto the beach uh, unbeknownst to the state they were pumping out of an old munitions dump wow yeah well, who would have thought yeah right? i mean really and truly <laughs> who would have thought example yeah you who would have known so they wound up a few weeks before beach opening beach season opened in in new jersey with it, it, certainly places that you wouldn't want your kids to make a sandcastle so yeah so we went out and and cleared the munitions off the beach yeah and and if i remember correctly even the manufacturing process back in war too some of those munitions could still be viable some of that ordnance could still be live even after all that years under under all that water could have been could have been right could have been it's certainly stuff that you don't want to be playing with no <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it sounds more, it certainly sounds, sounds dramatic, but you'll talk to the people who worked night and day to get that done. Uh, I don't think anybody ever felt in danger. You know, okay. we, we, but they actually dredged the munitions up and put them on the beach. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. 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 So this is, we're getting close to winding up the show. This is uh, the time that we actually do the Red Wing safety tip a week. So does Weston have a Red Wing safety tip to share with our audience? Yeah, I have one. I, I travel a ton for business and I've got two things that I, um, that I, I typically call out. Um, you know, this is not a, uh, we're going to blow something up sort of safety tip, but it's, it's stuff that we probably do every day and you don't think about. Number one is rental cars everybody gets a rental car picks it up at the airport or wherever they pick it up get in they drive away and assume everything's good to go a couple things to check on the rental car tire pressure walk around uh, make sure that your mirrors are adjusted correctly you know everybody thinks about that the one that nobody ever thinks about is making sure the inside of the windshield is clear and i drive early mornings a lot and the sun comes up and if the inside of your windshield's dirty you're looking to a big glare shield and you can't see anything. Yeah. When you're going 75 miles an hour on the highway, that's not something you want to find out. Yeah. Just think about that one. And the second one is just distracted driving. You know, I, I traveled the state of Texas at least. San Antonio, Austin have no hands-free ordinances for their cell phones. Houston doesn't. And uh, it's some scary stuff to be passed by somebody going 85 miles an hour on the highway and they're looking at their cell phone. And so just heads up awareness on distracted driving that's some scary stuff yeah so let me just throw a little personal note on that one i actually uh, woke up in hospital emergency room about eight years ago and the reason i woke up in hospital emergency room is because i was texting while i was driving i don't do it anymore don't be like mark and end up in the hospital emergency room because you're texting while you're driving a uh, great safety tip um so um let's see where are we bag winner. bag winner and this week's winner of the red wing offshore bag is Blake Young, a petroleum engineering student at LSU. Congratulations, Blake. I'm sure you get a lot of use out of this bag. 
Congratulations. So, Ann Ryan, do you, would you like to win a, a Red Wing offshore bag? It's that bag actually right there. I would love one. It has become such a cult item. I have been offered $500 in cash for those bags, and I won't take it. The only way you can win and the only way our audience can win is you go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put in your information. We award one lucky winner a week. See official, soul, uh, see official site for rules and, and details. Well, this has been a butchery day today. <laughs> um, LinkedIn group, uh, if you like this show, if you like our other shows, we have some new shows coming out. All that's going to be announced on our Oil & Gas Global Network or OGDN LinkedIn group. Uh, memberships growing like crazy. Uh, Paige Wilson does a great job of making sure she moderates every post and every person. So we have zero spam and we'll keep it that way. Um, if you like the show, can you do me and Patrick a favor, please, 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 <laughs> and give us an iTunes review. It takes five minutes. We are so far behind oil and gas this week. We just want to try to get close to them. So do us a favor. Leave us a review. And if you don't like the show, leave us a review and let us know you don't like the show. How would you like us to change it? Because we'll, we'll consider it at least, huh, Patrick? And if you left a review, you probably need to leave a new, a new review since our feed broke. And <laughs> Why'd you have to bring that up? <laughs> I, I broke the feed. So, yeah, if you left us a review in the past, I'm sorry, but I, I basically made them all go away. Can you do it? Can you come back and do again i won't break the feed again <laughs> also if you're listening to the show on your on your iphone and you want to share it with some of the people in your audience that can't load a podcast on their phone so that 45 year old plus audience send them to the website oilandgashsne.com they can listen to directly from the web and patrick i know something you don't know what do you know we are getting ready to have our own streaming radio station we are yeah so this show will be its own internet streaming radio station very soon when that happens we'll let you know um, we'll actually put a link to that so you can stream it anytime you want. Big time. Yeah, big time. Yeah, we actually have our turn up podcast to radio shows. Actually backwards. Usually it's the other way around. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also, if you go to the website, onlygashsne.com, make sure you put your email address in there. We won't spam you, and this way we can reach out to you and let us know anything new. That's the first place we'll announce anything new. Um, we have new show coming out. Speaking of Paige Wilson, she has oil and gas industry leaders. Right now, we're looking to launch live from the floor of OTC, from the Caterpillar booth, the first day of OTC. So if you're at OTC, come listen to us. We're actually all going to be interviewed by Paige. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, she says we're industry leaders. Yeah. Really? Yeah, that's what I said <laughs> when she told me that. <laughs> We're on the road, um, and we cannot be on the road without an on-the-road sponsor. So big shout-out, big thank you to Lee Heck and Harrison. They're global experts in talent management, and over 75% of the Fortune 500 oil and gas companies use them. So if you need some help with talent, workforce transformation, reach out to Lee Heck and Harrison. They're awesome. Uh, we're going to be at the Texas Open Innovation Conference. Is that next week, Patrick? It's next, next week, week right? Yeah. yeah. Then OTC, May 1st to 4th. And then BP MS-150. Wow. That's a big one. We just got our, our press credentials, so we're going to be covering the event in LaGrange. We're going to go to Austin. We're not sure exactly what we're going to be doing, but keep an eye on Facebook Live and the uh, LinkedIn group, and uh, we might be doing some recordings from the event. Yeah, and if you'd like Patrick and I to come do a recording from your event, it's really easy, or even just come speak to you. Uh, reach out to Patrick and I. We'll share the details. So, Ann and Ryan, this has been great. I mean, we got a really good behind the scenes. It's really amazing how complex y'all's world actually really is. Um, but y'all did a great job of explaining how you actually help companies. And it was fun. We had a good conversation, even though we had to do it twice. Um, <laughs> if people wanted to learn uh, more about Weston's, where should they go? Just go to our website, westonsolutions.com, W-E-S-T-O-N solutions.com. Yeah, Patrick will put a link in the Absolutely. show notes so it'll be easy to find. Thank you for, for, for being on as guest. Actually, like Ann, you said you were going to be speaking in this summer at the uh, the remediation conference? It's, it's a reclamation, reclamation summit. Okay. It's in uh, Keensburg, Colorado. That will be April 25th, I believe. Okay. Um, if you just look up rec reclamation summit, um, you should be able to find it. We'll uh, put a link in the show notes so if yeah. people want to hear more about what you have to say, they can they can go to the uh, the conference. Yeah, so, so audience, go uh, click on the link, go sign up for the conference, go listen to Ann speak. She is fascinating. She's fun, too. I guess that's that. Ready? Is that it? Yeah, I think that wraps it up. 
Yeah, so uh, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. Some old colleagues of mine were rehashing this a couple weeks ago. So wetlands, the south, you know, if you have these big saturated wetlands, you know, people, you know, you think about swamps and whatnot, but sometimes they're kind of, you don't know how wet they are, and operators are, you know, they're out there digging, you know, their trenches or whatnot, and so I run environmental inspection groups too, so you have these environmental monitors and inspectors, and this, our monitor was not there when this particular contractor drove um, the backhoe into this wetland that was completely saturated, and it was just one of those years, you when does it rain? When you want to build a project. <laughs> you know, it always does. And it just was one of those years where we just kept having downpour after downpour. This backhoe sunk in this <laughs> wetland. Disappeared. So fast. And it was there for, like, I think it was eight or nine weeks before they were able to get out because it just kept raining. Wow. Like, it was gone. You could not see it. It was crazy. So one of the things we were talking about the other day, because it's going into this big construction phase, we're like, we need to remind people when they're building in areas that have these big saturated, it may look like it's okay. It may not be. You might want to put a test walker out there. I mean, bats get lost. I mean, they, you know, you'll go and install these big mats thinking, oh, we're going to go protect it. The bats will just go away. Um, it's like quicksand, you know? I mean. You're going to find a brontosaurus. Backhoe operators, we're going down. We're, 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 well, <laughs> something's somebody, not right. <laughs> I wasn't there when it happened. I mean, I came back, did inspections. And it was always like, you know, what day is this thing going to dry out that we're ever going to see the top of this thing? But someone had taken a video, and this guy that was driving it, seeing him run out of this piece of equipment it was like what just happened it was crazy absolutely crazy